Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us, as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. This morning I was reminded of these verses from Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God knows what he's doing. And that's why we're going to the book of Acts, because it's a reminder that God knows what he's doing in his church. God has a plan for his church, and God has a a purpose and a, a reason for us to be here today, gathered together. God has a reason for us to go out into this world. God has a purpose for us, and it's a purpose that's bigger than us. It's a purpose that's all for His glory. So that His greatness might be seen everywhere in our world, in our community. So with those thoughts, let's read together Acts 15 this morning. If you would stand with me as we read out of reverence and respect for God's Word to us this morning. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, 
why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after, or after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his, own, for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may we receive your words. May we treasure up your commandments. Make our ears attentive to your wisdom. Incline our hearts to understanding. As we call out for insight, as we raise our voice for understanding, as we seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, may we understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's one sound in my house that I simply dread. I've not been able to get over this sound. Each time I hear it, my response is 
usually the same. And that sound that I do not like is the sound of the doorbell. There is something within me each time I hear it. I have this urge to run away and hide. Quick, turn out the lights. Kids, don't move. Be quiet. Whatever you do, stay away from the door. Maybe if we're quiet enough, maybe if we're still enough, maybe if we just wait long enough, maybe if we're able to just ignore it, they will go away. I'm not one of those people who skips to the door looking to see who's there. And as I peek out of the front window to see who it is and hope that they don't see me and hope that they're not one of those people who are persistent that just keep ringing and knocking and ringing and knocking, hoping that they just go away. I can just ignore them and they just go away. Maybe it is like that with our lives and controversy. When there is an issue, a problem, something that needs to be addressed and faced, we dread it. We can try to pretend like it's not there. Maybe if I don't move, maybe if I don't do anything, if I just ignore it, maybe it'll just go away. Often, though, it doesn't go away. It might die down for a while. It might be forgotten for a time. But if not dealt with, it keeps coming back each time with a little more difficulty. Each time with a little more hurt. Each time with more bitterness, more sadness, and maybe even more anger. Feelings that do not help the situation. Unfortunately, controversy is not a stranger to the church. If we took the time, I bet each of us who has spent time in the church could tell of some controversy, some problem, some rift that took place. We could tell of great damage that was done. We could tell of people who were hurt. We could tell of entrenched sides that solidified. We could tell of harsh words that were spoken. No, unfortunately, controversy is no stranger to the church. But what is even worse is often what the controversy is about. From the color of the carpet to the position of the pulpit, to the style of music, to whether there are chairs or pews. Let's just say that many, many, many of the controversies we have either heard about or know from first-hand experience in the church are controversies that when taken against the backdrop of eternal significance have very little or no consequence whatsoever. These are the controversies that people are all too quick to get involved in, all too quick to pick a side, all too quick to slander or malign their brother or sister, all too quick to bite and devour one another over things that in the end don't really matter. We can make mountains out of molehills, but I believe there is a danger In the church, when there are controversies that are big, that are important, controversies where God's word and the truth of his word is at stake, controversies where the reputation of the living God and his glory is at stake, and we are all too willing to ignore those controversies. There's a call here for us to see clearly when the molehills are really molehills, And when the mountains are really mountains, we cannot miss the mountaintop moments. There is a proper time to engage the controversy. There is a proper time to prayerfully seek to resolve the controversy. And how we respond to those pivotal moments will be crucial in your life as a Christian. Because how we handle or mishandle controversy demonstrates what we truly believe about Christ And how much we value the church. 
Acts 15 is one of those mountaintop moments in the book of Acts. It is the point where a problem is reached, the controversy within the church that must be dealt with. It must be resolved. It cannot be left alone. It cannot be ignored. It has to be met head on. And I believe that we must learn from it. I believe we must learn what is at stake in the resolution of such necessary controversies. In Acts 15, we have the very first church council. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It's the only church council that we have recorded in the Bible. And it's a very important church council. If we were to look in church history, there have been other church councils that have also been important. Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. All councils that met together to meet controversies head on with a desire to resolve the problems and uphold true biblical teaching. All controversies that revolved around the deity of Christ and the doctrine of Christ, things were at stake with these controversies and problems. Get it wrong, and devastation occurs. But get it right, and God is glorified. So why must we seek to resolve these big, mountain-like controversies when they come into the church? Why must we be willing to appropriately engage, and what is at stake? Four things this morning for us to look at that tell us what's at stake. And so, number one, we resolve controversy for the sake of the gospel message in the church. We resolve controversy for the sake of the gospel message in the church. Here's the problem. Paul and Barnabas are in the church in Antioch. Antioch is a town north of the nation of Israel, 300 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And there are Jewish men who have come from Judea, come from that area where Jerusalem is. They come to this church in Antioch, and the Antioch church is primarily made up of Gentile people, uncircumcised Gentiles. And this is what these Jewish men say. In order to be saved, you must be circumcised just like the law of Moses says. That's the problem. It is a problem of salvation. What do you need to do in order to be saved? How do people enter into the kingdom of God? And particularly in this context, remember there are two groups. There are the Jews and there are the Gentiles. And the Jews are saying to the Gentiles... In order to be truly saved, you have to become a Jew. You have to receive this external mark of circumcision in order to become a part of the people of God. And Paul and Barnabas didn't like this too much. It says that there was no small dissension and debate among them. Do you see that there? What does that mean? There was a big argument. <laughs> and it was an argument that was not resolved right then and there. Because as Paul and Barnabas have this argument, have this debate with, with these men, the church decides we need to send Paul and Barnabas with other men up to Jerusalem to talk about this question and get it answered. And here was the crux of the matter as they wrestled with this controversy. Is the gospel all of grace or not? Are people saved by grace alone or are they not? And how you answer that question is a matter of if you get the gospel right or if you get the gospel wrong. How you answer that question is a matter of whether you are saved or not. How you answer that question is a matter of where you spend your eternal destiny. 
We must get the gospel message right. We cannot afford to skimp, to water it down, or to add to it. And that's exactly what our human nature seeks to do. I need to add something to Jesus. What Jesus has done through his death and resurrection isn't enough. No, there's something I need to do. There's some work, some act, some performance that I must do in order to be saved, in order to get to God. But that is not the gospel. And people try to add to it. And it doesn't matter how sincere they are about it. You can be sincere about a lot of things, but you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is no accurate gauge for whether, for whether what someone believes is right or wrong. Whatever someone might try to add to the saving person and work of Jesus Christ is not the gospel. This is why we must hear the warning because these men were insisting on circumcision. They were saying, you must be circumcised. They are saying this is a divine must. They were saying... This is from God, therefore it is necessary. They were attempting to speak for God, but they were making a requirement what God did not require. Be careful, my friend, of putting a must where God has not put a must. Be careful for claiming to speak for God And say, this is God's way, if it isn't God's way. When you do that, you are not leading people to Christ. You are, in fact, leading them away from Christ into empty, vain, undesirable, man-made religion. And it might have all of the vocabulary. It might have all of the external appearances. It might look enticing, but it is not true Christianity, my friend, because what does true Christianity say? You are saved by grace alone. Why is it so necessary for us to hold to that? Why is it so important? It's so important because it's the difference between salvation being a work of the Lord or salvation being a work done by man. And look at how it's testified to in these verses. Verse 4, Paul and Barnabas are at the church in Jerusalem with its leaders. And it says this, and they declared all that God had done with them. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Peter stands up in the council after much debate and says, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart, hearts by faith. Look at verse 12. Paul and Barnabas relate to the council what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Here is what is at stake. It is God who saves, not man. It is God's work from beginning to end. Man cannot save himself by any works. Man cannot save himself by being circumcised. Man cannot save himself by keeping the law of Moses. And how dare we try to rip the work God is doing and make it our own and take credit for it ourselves. An attempt to steal his glory by making salvation about what we have done to get to God, rather than about making it about what He has done and His great grace has done to reach down to us, totally depraved sinners, and rescue us from our misery and our sin. This is salvation that comes to us by grace through faith. Salvation is not based, or salvation is based on believing, not on doing. And it is the way that everyone is saved. Some are not saved one way and others another way. This is the beauty of God's plan of redemption. 
people hear the word of the gospel, they believe in this gospel, and they are saved. And God gives the gift of his Holy Spirit to each and every one who believes. There is no distinction. God cleanses hearts through faith. All hearts, every heart that believes. And this is the real circumcision that people need. It's not an external circumcision done with hands. It's a circumcision of the heart. This is where the Jews had gone wrong. It's where man still goes wrong today. We are experts at being able to arrange the deck furniture of the Titanic, but we can never fix someone's heart. Only God can do that. Paul says this in Colossians 2.11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is how you know who the true people of God are. They have been given a new, clean, alive, and working heart. James, who's mentioned here in the Jerusalem Council, he's the half-brother of Jesus, stands up as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he quotes Old Testament scripture to them, showing that God's word agrees with what they were seeing happen in the lives of the Gentiles. He quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12. And there, Amos describes this restoration and rebuilding of the tent of David. How does this restoration and rebuilding happen? It happens through the new David. It happens through David's greater son. It happens through Jesus Christ. He rebuilds the tent so that people can have access to God. But not just access for the Jews, access for all mankind who seeks the Lord. Access for those Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord and come to bear the name of the Lord. And look back here for a moment at verse 11. Peter says this, but we believe that we, that's the Jews, we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Notice it is not the other way around. He doesn't say the Gentiles will be saved by the grace of Christ just as we will. He doesn't compare Gentiles to Jews, but he compares Jews to Gentiles. The Jews will be saved by the grace of Christ just like the Gentiles will. The Jews need grace just as much as the Gentiles do. They are not any better off. They are not in a better position if they say they hold the law. No, everyone needs the grace of Christ if they are to be saved. And we must be crystal clear about the gospel and defend the gospel and not compromise on one point of the gospel in fear of losing the whole gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes to you this morning. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save sinners, which each and every one of us are. That he accomplished salvation for us through his suffering death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, but that three days later he rose from the dead, announcing that his death was the perfect sacrifice needed to forgive you of sin and bring you eternal life and fellowship with God. And now he calls you to repent of your sin and believe in him. There is no work that you have to do in order to be saved. Salvation is offered to you this morning as God's gift. You are called to receive the gift to find life in him. And this is the message that we as Christians are willing to risk our lives for. Isn't that what Paul and Barnabas did? Verse 26 Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They got the message right and it meant risk. Why? Because people don't like the message. People like it if there's some way that they can control it and there's something that they can do in order to get in. 
But Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, it's all of grace. There's nothing that you can do to get in. There's nothing that you can do to save yourselves. You are sinners in need of grace. You are dead people who need to be made alive. People don't like to be told that they're dead. They got the gospel right and it meant they risked their lives. And if they didn't get it right, then they risked their lives for nothing. As one pastor says, risk is right. Risk is right because the gospel is true. Risk is right because the gospel is powerful. Risk is right because the gospel is valuable. Risk is right because Jesus Christ is glorious. We must get the gospel right. Number two, we resolve controversy for the sake of the souls in the church. We resolve controversy for the sake of the souls in the church. We have those plates in our house. Maybe you have plates like us, those plates that are fine china. We only use them for special occasions. We store them in a safe place. We handle them with care. After they have been used, we carefully wash them by hand, dry them by hand, place them back on the shelf. We don't treat those plates like our everyday dishes, which we throw into the sink, throw into the dishwasher, and then throw back onto the shelf again. There are two different ways we treat the everyday plates with how we treat the fine china. How do you treat the people around you? Do you treat them like the everyday dishes? Or do you treat them like the fine china? Are you rough, harsh, insensitive, sometimes uncaring, or perhaps indifferent, just not caring about the people around you? Or do you handle other people's lives around you with care, and love, and tenderness, and affection, and warmth, and concern? How should we treat souls within the church? How should we look out for others around us? Getting the gospel right is important because it has a direct effect on people's souls. It's of supreme importance because people matter. At the end of the council... As James is making the final speech, he says that his desire is not to trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And he sees that that requirement of circumcision, that requirement of the law, to be a trouble in the Gentiles' life. He is sensitive to the Gentiles' souls. He is sensitive to the people's hearts and lives, especially to those who are in the church in Antioch. And so he writes a letter to them. And he begins that letter by saying and acknowledging that there are some that have gone out from them, that have come to the people in Antioch, who were not authorized to teach about circumcision, but did anyways. They were false teachers in that regard, and they troubled the believers in that church. He says that they unsettled their minds. It's verse 24. It caused confusion and disturbed them. It was a distress to their souls. Think about those words for a moment. Confused, disturbed, unsettled, troubled, distressed. Those words all too well describe minds in our world today. We see it everywhere we go. We cannot deny it. But that should not be the mind or the life of those in the church. 
Do any of those describe you this morning? Why is that? Is it because you've lost sight of the true gospel? Is it because something has crept in that you've made a divine must? Something else that maybe you've added? Confusing people, disturbing people, unsettling people is exactly what false teaching does. It doesn't free them from their burdens. No, false teaching and the wrong gospel seeks to heap more and more burdens upon people's back to weigh them down. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus accuses the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 2-4. He says this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's exactly what Peter says in the council is happening in his controversy. He says that, People who are saying that it's necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law in order to be saved are putting God to the test. Those are very dangerous words. Remember what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness when they put God to the test. Remember what Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And do you remember when Jesus Christ even uses that verse when he is being tempted in the wilderness by Satan? It is a dangerous line to be in if you are someone who twists the gospel because if you twist the gospel, you are putting God to the test. And Peter charges that a yoke is being put upon them, a yoke that they cannot bear, a yoke that no one has been able to bear. Peter says, no one has been able to perfectly keep the law. No one has been able to perfectly keep the law of Moses so as to be accepted by God. Peter says that they haven't been able to do it. Their fathers were not able to do it. The law of Moses only revealed their sin. It's only given them a knowledge of their sin and their need for a Savior. Adding rules and regulations, adding hoops and hurdles, adding things that people must do in order to be saved does not protect the gospel. It keeps people from the true gospel and is absolutely harmful to souls and lives. What is so damaging about it? It keeps people from Christ. It keeps people from His love. It keeps people from His compassion. It keeps people from His grace. It keeps people from the call of Christ. A call that all people need to hear. A call that brings with it comfort and soothing and rest that all souls long for. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My friends, souls are at stake. And souls need to hear this call. There's no reason to burden people with a false gospel because it does not make anybody free. Number three, we resolve controversy for the sake of the fellowship in the church. We resolve controversy for the sake of the fellowship in the church. There seems to be a more recent, I don't know how recent, recent from my point of view, recent craze that I see popping up more and more in stores. Maybe you've seen it as well. It's this craze over flavored sparkling water. Have you seen those displays? And it appears to me that there are two camps when it comes to flavored sparkling water. 
either you love it or you don't. I've tried it, and I don't. And I heard people say, oh, it's so great, it tastes great, I love it. And so I had built up these expectations in my mind, and it comes in this little cool can, and, and I think, oh man, this is going to be great. But I couldn't even finish the can. <laughs> it's like you take carbonated water, and then you put like a small drop of co- cough syrup in it, and you drink it. The flavor was so diluted just left this awful aftertaste in my mouth. I even heard someone describe it as drinking liquid misery. It's about how I would sum it up. In my mind, I don't like things that are overly diluted, overly watered down. Maybe you have drunk something that was so diluted it was downright disgusting. My fear is that sometimes we can dilute the word fellowship. We can make the word fellowship mean so many different things, but we lose sight of what true, bold, fully flavored fellowship is supposed to be in the church. True fellowship is a fellowship we have in Christ. It is Christ our Lord who brings us together into true fellowship with other believers in Christ. It is our union with Christ that we base our fellowship with other believers upon. It is based on Christ, and it is a fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual coming together of lives who are seeking to live in step with the Holy Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit together. It's lives that are coming together to share materially what they have with one another, but also to share their spiritual life, their spiritual growth, with each other so that the church is built up in love. Fellowship in the church was a major concern at the church council in Jerusalem. How do we know that? We know that by what the council tells the Gentiles to do. They say you are saved by grace alone. You are believers But there are some things that you need to observe. These things don't make you saved. But they are important for a life of holiness and godliness and important for fellowship in the church. What do they tell the Gentile Christians to observe? One, abstain from foods polluted by idols. Foods that have been offered in sacrifice to idols in worship. They are not to eat those foods. Two, they are to abstain from sexual immorality. Being saved by grace does not mean that you are free from morality. There was sexual immorality that was rampant and readily received among the Gentile culture. And so sexual purity was a necessity. Third, they were to abstain from eating foods that had been strangled. And fourth, to abstain from foods that were still in their blood that had not been drained. Why these four things? Why this list? Very simply, all of these things relate to the pagan worship in the Gentile culture. All of these actions had ties to false pagan worship. And such ties to false pagan worship would have a hindrance on the Gentile Christians' fellowship with the Jewish Christians. This is why the council came to this conclusion, because it wanted to promote unity of fellowship within the whole church. The Gentiles were going to have Jews in their churches. And the call for God's people to be a distinct and holy people has not changed. That meant the Gentiles could not live like the culture around them. They could not live the way that they used to live. They had to live differently. They had to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness. And this would promote true fellowship within the church, true fellowship among brothers and sisters in Christ. It would be an important testimony to the pagan world around them. Have you experienced 
true fellowship in the church? Do you know what true fellowship looks like? Have you tasted that bold, full-flavored fellowship that God wants you to know in the church? The only way that you will ever know true fellowship in the church is when you are willing to die. Die to your preferences. Die to your selfishness. Die to demanding your own way. Die to thinking that church is all about you. How deluded sometimes is our understanding of the word fellowship. Are you willing to give up yourself for the sake of your brother and sister? Are you willing to sacrifice for your brother and for your sister in Jesus Christ? If not, do not claim to know Jesus because Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus experienced death. Jesus experienced God's judgment. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. We don't ask how much did Jesus give. Instead we ask what didn't Jesus give? What more was there to give? He did this precisely so that you can have fellowship with God. And you are unwilling to deny yourself for the sake of fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ? Do not be that one who says, no, I'm not going to give up that lifestyle. No, I'm not going to give up what I want, what I deserve, what I need to be happy. That is a life overthrown by idolatry, not a life that is a disciple of Jesus Christ. No true fellowship by sacrificing yourself for the Lord and for His church. Don't dilute the word fellowship. And council sends out this letter with, with these instructions. And how does the church receive that letter? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. What great joy there was because they had been encouraged by the fact that first they were believers and they didn't have to be circumcised, but they also were encouraged and rejoiced in the fact that the church was telling them you need to live a distinct, holy lifestyle for the sake of fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It wasn't received with a sense of dread or drudgery or dragging of the feet. How I love my brother and sister in Christ, and if I willingly lay down my life, if I willingly cut off any ties with the world that might bring discord and division in the church is an absolute necessity. John says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's True fellowship. Finally, we resolve controversy for the sake of the strength of the church. I'm amazed as we have read this text that going through this controversy didn't hinder the church didn't draw the church backward in any ways, but actually strengthened the church, actually built up the church. They hadn't been weakened by the controversy, but actually the resolution allowed greater strength and greater unity in the church. And Judas and Silas go to the church. They bring this letter. They're sent from Jerusalem 
And after they read this letter, they continue to stay there and encourage and strengthen the church with many words. And Paul and Barnabas are able to continue their ministry of teaching and preaching. They went back to the priority that was there from the start. And we see through this whole account their heart for the strength of the church. I think back for a moment to the beginning of our text where Paul and Barnabas are making their way from Antioch, a 300-mile journey, down to Jerusalem. And as they go on this 300-mile journey, they're stopping in cities and towns. They're finding the believers, and they're relating to them how the Gentiles have been saved. They aren't bad-mouthing their opponents. They aren't getting as many signatures as they could for a petition. They weren't maligning those people that they disagreed with. They simply relayed what God had done through them in saving people, in saving Gentiles. And that right there is the greatest argument for what they believed and the greatest evidence that God is strengthening and building His church. How do you know that God is strengthening and building His church? How do you know that God is saving people? Grace transform lives were everywhere because they were proclaiming the gospel everywhere they went. You want to see the evidence of God strengthening this church? He does it through changed lives. What do you truly believe about Christ and how much do you value his church? Do you see what is at stake? And are you willing to take a stand for those things that are important? To Jesus Christ. It will be seen in how you stand for the truth of God's word. And how you care for one another. And how you persevere in being conformed into Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Take this truth that we need to hear. Take this truth, plant it deep within our hearts and deep within our souls. Use it this week to change us and transform us. Use it this week as we solidify our minds on the true, right gospel. Solidify it in our minds for the sake of souls in this church that we might love the souls in this church, that we might want to see many more souls be saved because of this gospel. Lord, may we see the stake of fellowship in this church that we need to be willing to sacrifice for one another and do we see that you are doing this all to strengthen and build up your church. Let us not lose heart, but let us take heart and live with courage for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.